a prophecy against the valley of vision. What troubles you now that you've all gone up on the roofs? You town so full of commotion, you city of tumult and revelry. Your slain were not killed by the sword, nor did they die in battle. All your leaders have fled together. They've been captured without using the bow. All you who were caught were taken prisoner together, having fled while the enemy was still far away. The picture is of a city in uproar, but not because it's actually fallen to the enemy. There may have been a rumor of attack, and the fact that people were captured, as these verses say, once they'd fled already, shows that there were enemies around. But no one has died in battle. So what's going on? Where is this city? At this point, we just have the weird title, the Valley of Vision, don't we? Well, Isaiah gives us a clue in verse 4 when he talks about the destruction of my people. So we think, "Mm, is this Jerusalem where Isaiah lives? But verse 5 goes back to the picture of the Valley of Vision. And it talks about the Lord, the God of the people of Jerusalem, having a day when the walls will be smashed down. Surely this can't be about Jerusalem. The tension then builds in verses 6 and 7 as he describes the enemies coming from far away, preparing for battle, and then they're at the gate. But what gate? What city? We cry. Well, read verse 8 with me. The Lord stripped away the defences of Judah, and you looked in that day to the weapons in the palace of the forest. You saw that the walls of the city of David were broken through in many places. You stored up water in the lower pool. You counted the buildings in Jerusalem and tore down houses to strengthen the wall. You built a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. It is Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, the city of King David, set upon that mighty rock, Mount Zion. The palace of the forest is part of Solomon's palace complex. The lower pool was part of the water system that King Hezekiah remodeled to make Jerusalem more secure. That's what verse 11 is talking about. And finally, verse 10, look at that again. We have Jerusalem named clearly as we see the walls being strengthened. The Valley of Vision turns out to be an ironic title. The hill of Jerusalem has become a valley. Instead of giving a perfect view of the countryside around, there is no vision at all. They see nothing. Here's the point of Isaiah's little geography lesson about Jerusalem. The city is in panic. Some people have fled already. There is an enemy on the way. And so everyone who is left is looking to things that they think will bring them security. In this case, we have the three W's. So verse 8, we have weapons. Verse 9 and verse 11, it's water that they think will bring security. And verse 10, it's the walls. 
It's hardly surprising. Jerusalem was a very secure city. King Ahaz did care about the water supply. Back in chapter 7, we find him inspecting an aqueduct when the city is threatened. By the time that chapter 22 was written, Hezekiah had upgraded that system to make it even better. But God still says, how foolish. Have a look at the end of verse 11. But you did not look to the one who made it or have regard for the one who planned it long ago. They have not trusted the God who made the water and the rock. The one who, verse 12, names as the Lord, the Lord Almighty. That means something like the one who was and is and is to come, the God of heaven's armies. He is the one they can trust. But panic continues. There's fatalism in verse 13. Instead of repenting and turning turning to God, they say, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. They have no hope, and so they think they should just have one last party. But verse 14 is the verdict. Judgment will come. Now, whether the people's panic caused the leaders to panic, or it was the other way around, verses 15 to 19 are a vivid illustration of what is going on. Shebna, named there in verse 15, is like the prime minister, and so he should have been rallying the troops, checking the walls, and most of all, getting people to call out to the Lord. But verse 16, where do we find him? Preparing his own grave, because he has no hope. And so the Lord judges him and rejects him, as we see in 17 to 19. Shebna is then replaced by Eliakim, verse 20. You can uh, check out chapter 36, verse 3, to see that this does happen. And it all looks good for a while in those verses, doesn't it? Eliakim seems to have taken on the mantle of kingship. That's what verses 21 to 22 are about. And 23 to 24 seems to be a great relief. He's going to have a seat a firm place. He's going to be a peg, firmly secured. It all looks good. But then it comes crashing down, literally. Verse 25, the peg will give way. Over the course of this series in Isaiah, we're going to continue to think about the reasons we're tempted to forget about God and the things that we're, tr- uh, we're tempted to trust in instead of him. Here, I want us to think about leaders. So in verses uh, 15 to 25, we have these two leaders, and we see God's warning not to put our trust in leaders. We have Shebna, who is self-interested, and Eliakim, who just cannot bear the weight. They serve as a warning to us. 
the theologian Calvin said this, they who rule unjustly and incompetently have been raised up by God to punish the wickedness of the people. Bad leaders are a warning to us. We live in an age where leaders still matter to us. We want someone to come in from the outside and fix stuff. We want our political leaders to fix the cost of living crisis and the environmental crisis. We want our church leaders to stop the rot in the Church of England or to end homelessness. Now, it would be great, really great, if all those things happened. But we cannot leave it to our leaders ignoring the God who truly rules. Now, Shebna and Eliakim may have been good at their jobs, just as many of our political and church leaders are good at theirs. But they were incapable of fixing Jerusalem's problems through a lack of trust or through sheer finiteness. We've launched All Souls Listens because we want to hear what you have to say about our culture here, not just our leadership culture, but definitely about that as well. Please do fill out that survey that Ollie was talking about so that we can think about how to be a good church together. And as we're thinking about ways to do that better together, let's hear verse 11 again, the end of verse 11. But you did not look to the one who made it or have regard for the one who planned it long ago. As we think about all these things, God is telling us to look to him in prayer and in listening to him. Verse 12, in repentance, not fatalism. Next time we see a problem that needs fixing, let's think about who we think will do that. God or someone else. This is a portrait of a city in panic. And none of the places of security that they look for will be any good. Military or political. Weapons or water or leaders. None of those things will work. Remember God saying to Ahaz that we saw last week, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Who are we going to trust when the enemy is at the gate? If you don't think that you know the answer to that question, then a reminder that Life Explored starts tomorrow. Really good question to ask. Who are we going to trust when the enemy is at the gate? Now, the question that we need to ask next is, how have they got themselves into this kind of panic? Remember, if you can, that chapters 13 to 20 that have come before talk about all of Judah's enemies falling. And chapter uh, 22 is sandwiched in the context of chapter 21 and 23. More judgment on the nations around Judah. Chapters 21 and 23 are a window to the end of the world. It's our second point, a window to the end of the world. Chapter 21 starts with 
a prophecy about the desert by the sea. Isaiah is shocked by the brutality of it all in verses 1 to 5. And again, we don't know who this is about, do we? The tension builds as Isaiah sets a watchman to look out for news. But then verse 9, we find out Babylon has fallen. In verses 11 and 12 and 13 to 16, we have these two short prophecies about Edom and Arabia. The outcome for Edom is uncertain, but it's certainly not hopeful. Arabia will fall very quickly. The other side of the sandwich is chapter 23, the fall of Tyre. Now, if Babylon's weapons were power and violence, then tires are wealth and luxury. In this chapter, we see the nations of the Mediterranean world um, in desolation as Tyre falls. The hub of their trading wealth is overthrown. It's a reminder that there are different ways in which the Lord's people can be opposed and attacked. Babylon smashes Tyre seduces. You can build walls and take up arms against Babylon, though as we've seen, without the Lord, that means nothing. But with Tyre, it is not so obvious. The rich perfumes, the soft scarves, they blind us to the dangers of getting into bed with Tyre and its gods. What's the problem with giving a portion of our prophets to the local temple to thank the gods for safe passage across a dangerous sea. Well, the danger is very great, and the Lord of the nations will brook no rival. And so chapter 23, we see Tyre is destroyed. And yet, and yet, we have verses 15 to 18. Come with me to those, the end of chapter 23, verse 15. At that time, Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years, the span of a king's life. But at the end of these 70 years, it will happen to Tyre as in the song of the prostitute. Take up a harp, walk through the city, you forgotten prostitute. Play the harp well, sing many a song, so that you will be remembered At the end of 70 years, the Lord will deal with Tyre. She will return to her lucrative prostitution and will ply her trade with all the kingdoms on the face of the earth. Yet her profit and her earnings will be set apart for the Lord. They will not be stored up or hoarded. Her profits will go to those who live before the Lord for abundant food and fine clothes. There will be a day when the prophet of Tyre will enrich God's people. It's extraordinary stuff, but it really does fit in with Isaiah's overall message and the message of the Bible. God is the God of the nations, and he will bring them into his blessing. Psalm 82 verse 8 puts it like this, Rise up, O God, judge the earth, For all the nations are your inheritance. Judgment 
and bringing the nations in come together. Well, let's just pause for a moment and recap where we've got to. So we've got these four prophecies telling us that God is in control of all the nations and will defeat his enemies. His victory is coming. What's more, in the final analysis, he will even bring in the wealth of the nations to his own people. The window to the end of the world tells us that God's victory is coming. And yet, chapter 22, sandwiched in the middle, is a portrait of a city in panic. A people who seem to have forgotten all about their God. Forgotten that he is the one who was and is and is to come, the God of heaven's armies. How do we put those two things together? Well, Isaiah is saying to the people of Jerusalem, look out of the window to the end of the world. Look and see that God's victory is coming. Why all the panic? Why all the frantic action to shore up your position? Have you forgotten your God? Lift your eyes to the one who is really with you. And look at what he is going to do. Now, I quite like the keep calm and carry on posters and mugs and tote bags and all the other things that you can get with that slogan on it. It appeals to my sense uh, that panicking doesn't normally help us. It's uh, a simple message, isn't it? And it helps us to think, okay, I just don't know what to do. Oh, here's what I have to do. Just not panic. I think I can do that. Now, I think Isaiah would have approved of uh, that message, but I think he would have added a little bit more that just wouldn't fit on a tea towel. You see, Isaiah says more than keep calm and carry on. He says more than the nations around you might look scary, but just don't panic, don't be scared. He says more than that. He tells us, he tells God's people why they don't need to be scared or to panic. (coughs) It's because God has the nations in his hands and he is bringing his victory. God's victory is coming. Now, we are not in the same position as the people in Jerusalem in the Old Testament. The church is not a nation state with other nation states around us trying to destroy us by military might. So we have to take an extra step to work out what it means for us here and now. And in some ways today, that's not as hard as it sometimes is because the New Testament does that step for us. About 800 years after Isaiah lived, John wrote Revelation. And in chapters 17 to 22, right at the end of the Bible, he picks up these pictures from Isaiah to talk about God's ultimate victory. In Revelation chapter 17, we read of Babylon as the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. John then combines the language about Babylon and Tyre, the tyrant and the trader, the power and prostitution. 
He uses that language to describe the city opposed to the people of God, oppressing God's people. God's people were under immense pressure then too. They were even dying for following Jesus. But then the cry goes up, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. It's a deliberate echo of chapter 21, verse 9 of Isaiah. It's the cause of much weeping for many, but also great, great rejoicing in heaven, a celebration which spills over into the wedding feast of the Lamb, the culmination of all history. That is the extra detail that we get to see when we look through that window to the end of the world. We see Jesus's place in it. We see the victory of the Lamb, Jesus, the King of Kings. The new Jerusalem that we get to see at the end of Revelation, coming in the wake of the fall of Babylon, will be a place where the kings of the earth bring in their riches to bless God's people. Remember, that's what God said about Tyre at the end of chapter 23. The message of Isaiah 21 to 23 is the message of Revelation, which is the message to us today too. The people of Jerusalem were surrounded by enemies and they were panicking about how they would survive. The Christians that John was writing to were under severe pressure and trials of many kinds. We too, because we follow Jesus, face and will continue to face trials and persecution, hardship. But Isaiah says God's victory is coming. There is no need to panic. We can take up the weapons, strengthen the wall, and see to the water supply. We can do those things as long as we are looking first and foremost to the one who made them, seeing them all as God-given gifts to help us to hold on until Jesus's ultimate victory, a victory that has been won by the death, his death on the cross and his resurrection to new life. God also gives us leaders whom we can trust, but we mustn't put our faith in them. Now, that might sound like a subtle distinction, but it's an important one, isn't it? We can remember that Jesus is now the one who has the keys to the house of David. He is the peg on whom all the weight of sin and shame has been placed. It did snap him, but not ultimately as he rose to victory. We can put our faith in him to lead us to victory on his great and final day. So in these chapters, we've seen a portrait of a city in panic in the context of God's utter control of the nations. Brothers and sisters, let's peer again this week through that window to the end of the world 
and see the great and final day of Jesus, his ultimate victory. And looking through that window, let's hold on to the hope that we have in him. Let's pray.